Welcome, Legionaries, to episode 13 of Legion Cast. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me is my co-host, Brandon, and our sometimes co-host, Manipole. Welcome, boys. What have you been up to? Welcome, Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me, smart people who skipped this book. Welcome to Legion Cast. I'm doing well, though. Uh, I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here. I'm happy to have Manipole back again. Always a pleasure to have you. Really appreciate you slogging through this one. I know you don't dislike it as much as I do, but uh, I feel strongly in the negative about it. Well, thanks for having me. Greetings, fellow Longbeards. Remember that regrets are the only thing you keep forever. I'm happy to be here on Battle for the Abyss. I have some ideas about the book, about why it is the way it is, and looking forward to a robust conversation. Awesome. Well, why don't we go around the horn here? First off, what are you guys drinking tonight? Don't make me do this. Why, Warwick? What are you drinking tonight? Well, I ran out of whiskey on Saturday because you and I got fucking plastered that night, so I'm drinking tea. Let's let's set the record straight here. You got plastered. That was a singular thing. It, it was about a half a bottle of good whiskey, and I don't regret it. No, we had fun. It was a good time. What about you, Manipole? Actually, I, I I came into the recording room without anything to drink, and all that's behind me is a bottle of glue and some airbrush thinner, so probably not going to drink any of that. So what you're saying is that you're partying tonight. Maybe, yeah, big time. When in Rome. I am drinking some Lagavulin 11, uh, the, the Nick Offerman special. What I understand is that he turned in quite the interesting performance just recently in The Last of Us, so... That's fun. It makes oh, me feel good about drinking this. To be clear, it was a killer performance. The story just didn't go anywhere. Good oh, to know. That's a good theme for our book tonight. Hey, there you go. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it, it was very fitting for me to, to, to kind of wrap that up in the same time frame. So let's, uh, let's talk hobby tables, what we've been up to. I'll kick that off real quick. I had a big pile of Forge World resin that I was cleaning up and putting together all weekend. And that was fun, kind of its own challenge. Um, I'm really not happy with Forge World quality. I know that everybody, nobody is. I mean, it's it's not great. It's straight up not fun. Um, I did put together Remus Ventarnus, the uh, Legion Champion, the Master of Signal. And I also had a vigilator that i got from manipul to put together so that was fun i'll just be working on them for a while but it's about all i've been up to what about you guys so i downloaded this figure case app and i logged all of my orcs i've been working on my 40k orc army for the month of january to try to get it finally done and i've logged 305 unique miniatures and in this last month i've painted about around 150 leaving me at a only 66% completion rate. But all the stuff that's left, I've got a, a few more to go, but most of the ones that I count as primed actually do have three colors, so they're just waiting for an ink wash. So I should be able to burn through the last, uh, give or take, 80 miniatures, and we'll be done with that army. Yeah, your motivation on that has been insane to watch. It's It's been great, and it's been fun to, to see how quickly you've been burning through those things. Yeah, I found that I got I got into a really good uh, batch painting sort of routine, and certainly since most of these are individual work boys, I figured out a really simple color scheme to burn through it. Uh, basically, just blocking in the colors and then doing my different washes on them to finish them up. 
and then hit the, hit the teeth and the tusks, and then I'm done. Move on to something else. Awesome. Well, yeah, like I said, I wish I could have the singular focus like that that you've had with these guys because um, it's been great to watch. I right now on my desk is uh, is Corswain, so I'm putting him together to uh, lead some of my Dark Angels. I have a few different projects sitting on the tables over here. I've been hitting a little bit of a hobby burnout, if I'm being honest, um, which has been frustrating because I've got a lot that I want to get done, uh, particularly before next month when Hogwarts Legacy comes out, because then I know I'll be getting no hobbying done for at least a couple of weeks. And because I'll, I'll be all my free time is going to be sunk into casting spells and being a wizard. Is that some sort of a Lord of the Rings knockoff? Yes, that's exactly what it is. It's like you take the Lord of the Rings and combine it with a bad story about Jesus. And no, it's you got it's it. teenage angst. But yeah, I've been I've been struggling with uh, really feeling a bit burned out. If I'm honest, uh, I've got some Harad uh, guys from my Escalation League over there for Lord of the Rings that really I've only been doing contrast on, but I just haven't been super motivated on them. Um, I did get all my airbrush stuff cleaned up and uh, I was able to put some oils down on some inner circle knights for the dark angels, as well as a terminator paladin. But I haven't really been able to focus and finish a, uh, a project really. You guys ever run into that? The main problem I had at my previous residence was I didn't really have a good dedicated hobby space. I couldn't just sit down and just paint a little bit. So if I was going to paint, I had to set everything up and, make a big deal out of it. And then that took up my, my game table. So then I couldn't have any games. So here at my new place, I've got an actual table where it's always ready to go. So I found it easier to, to pop in and getting the, the motivation to get these orcs done has really been on my mind for many years. And just seeing the models get finished and packed away has been great motivation. But yeah, I've certainly been there. We, you just, especially if I don't have a game coming up, it's hard to get focused on the effort it takes to, so I definitely get frustrated right now with the amount of space I have. I'm, I'm in a townhouse and I basically have, um, very limited space as it is. So I've got a small desk that I have my big, I've got some of my paint set up and I've got like my gaming rig and everything set up there, but it just, it never feels like quite enough space to comfortably do anything. And I'm, I've kind of been looking for something else, but it's not a great time to buy a house right now. So I am basically, I I do feel like being cramped really slows me down and a lot of my motivation, but every once in a while I'll get on a really big roll and I'll get a bunch of stuff knocked out. So I don't know. It just, it kind of comes and goes for me. It's hard to explain and I'm not sure how to like kind of reset my brain into wanting to paint more. I found those hobby nights where we get on discord and watch something helps me kind of kickstart that, that interest where we're just kind of talking and bantering back and forth while we paint that's been helpful for me well maybe in that case we need to have a hobby night here soon so that i can get the juices flowing again i think that's a good idea maybe on the next round table we should talk more hobby burnout or avoiding burnout and uh, like maybe top five uh hobby night movies that'd be fun yeah sounds like a blast well should we uh, should we talk new releases yeah so there was a really big uh release at the the vegas open 
uh, that was a pretty big deal. Uh, 40k Space Marines got a huge, well, a new Strike Force box that they released a new Primaris Dreadnought that looks pretty, pretty sick. There's the Wrath of the Soulforged King box set, which is 40k Dark Angels and the new Demon Prince for Chaos. A bunch of stuff for Underworlds. Uh, the Lizardmen or the Seraphon got a new release for AOS. They look pretty cool. And Warcry got some stuff. But the big thing for us is the the Cerberus got announced. And we t- talked about the Typhon in our last roundtable. And we, we weren't really sure if it was going to be like both tanks on the same chassis, like in the same kit. But it is the same chassis, but they're being sold separately, basically. So it, you're not going to be able to magnetize them anyway. But the Cerberus looks like a freaking beast. What do you guys think? Yeah, uh, I think it's uh, got a huge, massive gun on it. I think in games where you're running against a lot of other Lords of War or Titans, that might make sense to bring that. I don't know if in our 3,000-point games that we play, it would have much of a spot. But I suppose if you really needed to kill a Primarch, really needed to kill a a Land Raider, yeah, that might be the choice. That's a lot of points. Yeah, you know, I actually think this would be a great ad for uh, for Paul, who's not here joining us tonight, but... uh... You know, one of the things that his list currently struggles with is opening up armor because he's only got that one heavy support slot. Bringing something like that is going to open up a Land Raider like a tin can. So um, I definitely think it's got its uses. Um, It looks really cool. Um, I'm not going to lie, though. I'm pretty disappointed that we got another tank as our, our, our big reveal here. Right. And that's something else we wanted to talk about. They have been revealing... Uh, tanks left and right for Horus Heresy and we're really starting to get vehicle fatigue so I mean at what point are we going to get like plastic despoilers or plastic assault squads it's really frustrating right now because having to order that stuff from Forge World is going to be a pain and nobody's going to want to do it because the prices are I think aren't they like five uh five a piece right now the despoilers anyway or am I thinking of destroyers it's expensive either way so I think I would guess that a lot of people are just biding their time until some of those kits come out. I think the other thing I've seen people complaining about is it's hard to find the Mark III and Mark IV sets, which I think are, are I really like them because they're easier to modify and uh, do weapon swaps on. The Mark VI kits are kind of like a just a one-piece build. I haven't put together a ton of them. Have you guys found that? Are they easy to convert or is it more difficult? Um, I've had, I've kind of gone both ways on that because I've had really good luck just building the standard loadouts. Uh, I've built like three heavy support squads and two or three tactical support squads. And they, with all the kits that came out with the Mark II release, they all go together very well, or not Mark II release, the um, second edition release for Horus Heresy, I should say. Um, They all look great. and they all go together very well, but I, I'm guessing that I actually have a bunch extra that I need to turn into the Praetorian um, Breachers for Ultramarines, and I think they'll work fairly well. I just haven't gotten around to it yet, and I'm guessing if you wanted to put some different bits and pieces on it and start making different uh, champions or centurions, I mean, uh, it'd be easy enough to do. Yeah, I, I will say I have not really converted any of the Mark VI Marines. They're very nice kits. Um, the mold lines, for the most part, don't, like, they're nearly invisible just from putting them together um, on the box. Uh, they, the kits that they come out with with the heavy and special weapons fit together really easily. Um, it doesn't require a lot of work there. 
But if I was looking to convert, that would probably be one of my last stops uh, because they're really good at what they do. But like I've seen, um, I've seen some guys who have converted them into just spoilers and added chain swords and bolt pistols. You know, good on those guys for for converting them. You know, I'll never knock somebody for their hobby, but to me, they just you can tell that they're supposed to be holding a bolter. Like it doesn't look like a natural way that they're holding a sword and a pistol. Yeah, that that's why that's why those old the, the Mark Three and Mark Four kits would be much easier to turn into those different specialty kits, and they would be more fitting since some of those loadouts are from an earlier age of combat, you know, from the unification wars and that sort of stuff when the earlier marks were more in use. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, now I, I did want to ask you guys, um, I'm, I'm somewhat plugged into the community down here, but uh, I've seen a pretty significant drop off in players at my local store for Horus heresy. And anytime I ask anybody why this is the exact reason is oh, I play Blood Angels and I need the spoilers or Assault Marines and I'm not getting them right now. So I I think that you know these t- the tanks they look great I love the models but it's it's really hurting the game and I I worry about it because you know if we know anything about Games Workshop it's that they just look at the numbers and don't really look into any kind of nuance of why things aren't doing well. And I worry they're going to look at Horus Heresy and say, oh, it's just not performing. We're not going to support it anymore. When the entire community is crying out, hey, we need Assault Marines. We need the spoilers. We need our line troops to be in plastic and have kits. I was pleased that they came out with those scimitar bikes because I think that did open up a lot of possibilities for people, particularly something like White Scars, who really need a lot of those. And now that does open up a plastic option, at least there. So... You know, fingers crossed that in the next few months we'll get some of those. Just a some arm swaps would would do it, or just one kit for you know dual wielding space marines. Yeah, definitely. I, I would love to see just another upgrade kit to to be able to make those. But no, in GW that's not likely to happen. I think we've been lucky so far getting all the uh, heavy support kits and the tactical support uh, upgrades. But I'm I would. Pr- suspect that they put out another kit before they or another full kit before they put out another upgrade kit yeah and speaking of those upgrade kits uh there was another preview that was snuck in there uh where they are releasing cataphracty shoulder pads mark three shoulder pads and mark four torsos from forge world they are going to be made to order well i don't know if it's forge world but they're made to order for alpha legion and for Raven Guard. They did something similar for Ultramarines a while back. And Brandon and I talked about this on a previous episode, but they were like the the helmets with the grills that look like the wings, but they're like they're really bad. So they, they look more like bones or something. They're they're not good. So I don't I don't know if yours are any better, but I was not happy about the Ultramarines ones. Yeah, I think that's about it for our new releases. That's all that I heard of. Yeah, I think that's all we've really seen. Um, unfortunately, you know, LVO was, you know, they were focused on other things for the most part. But, uh, you know, we're getting getting the Cerberus heavy tank. Uh, that's exciting. And uh, so we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye out, see what else they have planned in the pipe. I'm sure that there's more. But uh, should, we, uh, should we move on to the book? Let's do it. All right, let's take a short break, and then we'll be uh, back shortly to discuss Battle for the Abyss.
Welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the break. We are going to be getting into talking about Battle for the Abyss by Ben Counter. This is Ben Counter's second book in the Horus Heresy story so far. He gave us the epic Galaxy in Flames that was just amazing. And then he kind of follows it up with this, and I'm not really sure if he was rushed or if there wasn't like a whole lot of follow-up to the themes that we're seeing here, but comparatively, this is not a great story. And when I read it, when I reread it this time, I was not as critical of it as I thought I would be. I still have a ton of problems with this book, but I thought I was going to thoroughly eviscerate it. But Maniple and I have already kind of gone back and forth about some of the issues that we have. And I think what we kind of got down to is that if you examine or if you kind of read this book in a bubble and kind of ignore what you know is right around the corner, then it's not that bad. But we, my big beef with it is a lot of the characters that we see. So let's talk Battle for the Abyss. Maniple, why don't you kind of go over some of the themes that we're going to be seeing here? So certainly with the last, with the first series of books, there's some really epic mythological themes going on here. It's really building this grand story of Horus's betrayal. And you see the, the the beginnings of the lives of some of the Primarchs, particularly when you guys talked about Descent of Angels and and how there's this this ancient history that all this is is on. And you really get the, the sense of the vastness of the 40K, uh, 30K story and what the Emperor is about and his sons. And it was easy for me in the previous books to kind of pull out some of those big themes. This one was a little bit more of a challenge. And I remember at the time when these books were coming out, they were fantastically popular. Uh, there, there were a lot of good Black Library books out at the time, but this was kind of uncharted territory because we had not really heard the fullness of the 30K story. And, and really, this is the first time we were meeting a lot of these characters. So I would suspect that at this time they were eager to get out of a bunch of books. And so they needed some that were not in the the main storyline just to kind of flesh out the whole universe. We're going to see this again when we do the book Nemesis, which involves a tale of some assassins, where it's kind of a uh, kind of a one-shot story. It doesn't advance the story, but it's linear. It expands the universe so you get to see more stuff. And I would I would get, ask a question of you guys. I imagine that Ben Counter got some brief from GW. What do you think was in that brief when they said, hey, we need you to, to write this book? What do you think they told them to do with it? That's a tricky one because I I don't know. Like maybe maybe they wanted him to do some kind of parallel to the ambush at Calf that kind of sets up the enmity between the word bearers and the ultramarines. But I'm not completely convinced that this book does a great job of that. Yeah, so that's one that I pulled out. I would wonder that in that brief, they said, well, we need you to introduce some new characters from these main legions, uh, introduce the fact that there are a bunch of rivalries. So I pulled out right away this idea of brother versus brother, because throughout the book, we see these rivalries come out, which we'll get into in more detail, but they probably wanted to say, hey, make sure the Ultramarines and the word bearers have a reason to hate each other. And then there's the, the, the Space Wolves and the Thousand Sons. They hate each other or at least the Space Wolves hate the Thousand Suns. And then we've heard a little bit about World Eaters, but let's have a World Eaters character 
So we know a little bit more about them because they're going to figure more prominently later on. So for me, it kind of sounds like an introduction to some of these legions that we don't know a ton about yet because, you know, up until this point, we've known a lot about the Sons of Horus and probably Iron Hands and the Thousand Sons. And a, a Thousand Sons were in Fulgrim, right? Oh, sorry. No, I meant Emperor's Children. You mean Emperor's Children. Yeah. Emperor's Children, yeah. So then I also pulled out the idea of a of personal rivalries, that in a, a lot of the books, we see uh, individual characters who are you know really at each other's throats. But I don't think that any of these rivalries were as well done as some of the ones we've seen in previous books. And also, we we get a lot about the subject of faith. What is faith? We did see that the Ultramarines have an idea of the imperial truth, which is atheism and reason, with the hard counter from the word bearers, which is actually religious faith in, in gods. And so these two things are, are are at odds throughout the book too, but it's it's done in a very blunt fashion. Yeah, um, I kind of agree with you. I, I want to touch on your your first theme you talked about there, which is brother against brother, because it it felt like that was absolutely the theme that they were going for, and they just executed on it very poorly. Um, one of my biggest critiques I had of this book is how quickly all of the loyalist Marines get over the fact that they're killing fellow Astartes. Like, I mean, it's, it's a moral dilemma for Cestus for about a page. And then it's, he's just, yep, let's go. And I don't even think the, I, I, I wouldn't expect the world eaters to have a problem with it, but the space wolf uh, character, he's fine with it. The, uh, the thousand son, he's shocked for like two minutes and then he's done. You know, for, for this theme of brother against brother, they're just oddly sanguine with everything that's going on. And, you know, you can say some of that is, you know, their their mental conditioning and things like that to react. And, you know, the fact that it's a fluid situation that they're in that keeps developing. But I, I just think they could have done. I think that Ben Counter could have done a better job on that. Right. So that's been a theme that we've seen throughout all the previous books where Space Marine fighting Space Marine it has been completely unheard of up until this point. So we see like there's this big shocking revelation at some point in all those stories where our main character has to grapple with the fact they're now dealing with a civil war. And in this book, we never really see that conflict. They, they just see that the word bearers have this mighty ship and, you know, it's up to them to try and stop it. So they come to terms with this very, very quickly. And is this the first time we've really seen that the Mechanicum has also turned traitor? Because Kilbar Hall early on destroys the moon where this big ship was constructed. Is this the first time we've met Kilbar Hall or has he been in other books so far? That is correct. I believe it's the first time we've met him. Um, I believe he's been mentioned by name in other books. Uh, because Horace does talk about how the Mechanicum is joining him um, when he when he lays out his plan to you know some of his chief generals. So I think he's I think he's mentioned by name in other places, but this is the first time he's actual present character, I believe. I do remember now. Um, Horace has his chief liaison aboard this, the Vengeful Spirit is talking to Kelbor Howell and False Gods about a bunch of the STCs that they recover from the uh, that uh, 
technically advanced human race that they're fighting. And we do see quite a bit of action from the word bearers here. But again, it's not as well developed. They, they just, especially our, our chief villain, Zadkiel, is just a mustache twirling bad guy. And he's rather incompetent and always looking to knock out his rivals. But that's about as far as we get with him. Blindingly arrogant is how I would describe him. He is just so far up his own cornhole that he is never focused on the actual objective. He's just always got... It's so weird because sometimes he's totally focused on just getting to McCrag and other times he's like, better subvert my uh, my subordinates and I better like, maybe now's a good time to take some action against this fleet that's chasing us. But when it comes down to the wire, like he's got no interest in actually finishing off the pursuing fleet. So why don't you give us just a quick rundown of how the story starts? Um, how does this whole thing begin without getting into too much detail? What is the book really about then? Right. So our Captain Cestus is aboard this space station getting ready to take off when they're hit by some kind of disturbance and the reactor is going critical. So he and his buddies go down to the reactor to shut it down. And as that happens, he gets a magic vision that says this giant ship, the Furious Abyss, is on its way to destroy McCrag. So he rounds up all the space marines available. So he gets some word uh, world eaters. So the Furious Abyss is a massive spaceship that, that that was built by the Mechanicum in secret, and the disturbance they they encounter is the death scream of the Fist of McCrag, which is Correct. a ship that they destroyed for no reason. Well, it was to te- it to it was uh, kind of their maiden voyage, so it was to test their weapon systems. So it it wasn't without reason, but I feel like it kind of revealed their hand too early. So if they had just ignored the fist of McCrag and gone, you know, straight for the throat, I think none of the the rest of the story would have happened because Cestus never would have been tipped off at this point. Right. Yeah. And so how does Cestus get this magic vision? Is he a psychic or is it just something that that's a great question, Maniple. It's not explained. And he yes, sees yes it. it is. It's a yeah. it's an astropath it's an astropathic death death scream from the fist of McCrag. Right, but how does he get it, but no other psychers do? That part I don't know. And and he sees it. He sees it through the when the reactor goes out. And, and it's just a really weird scene. It's not. It's not well explained. Yeah, you're right. It's not. So well, anyway. So Cestus and some buddies get together. He's got some space wolves with him. He's got some more Ultramarines, and he finds some World Eaters. And then out of nowhere, this Thousand Suns fleet captain shows up and is like, I believe you, we need to go chase down this ship. So he puts together this kind of um, hodgepodge fleet of a couple frigates, and they're on board the Rothful, which is like a line battleship, I believe. And the Thousand Suns has his own flagship as well. Uh, This is actually where I do want to get to a praise of of the book, is that I think that in this particular scene here, you know, we know the ultramarines are supposed to be legendary statesmen and he does an excellent job of putting this kind of ragtag group together and commandeering a fleet um, all on his, all on his own really. Um, So that was one of the praises I had for the books. I actually think that they nailed the ultramarine characters fairly well, if only kind of at a surface level. Uh, but, but they definitely play into what ultramarines are supposed to be. Yeah, and here's where one of my critiques of the book is too, where we learn about the Saturnine fleet, which is a very interesting little 
Easter egg in 30k lore, where the fleets that were based around Saturn actually predated the Imperium. And when the Emperor sent his first set of ships through the solar system, they encountered the Saturnine fleets already in in uh, in place in service, and they formed a alliance with the Imperial fleets, and now are going out you know, and fighting with the Great Crusade. Later on in the book, we find out that the Saturnine fleet is going to be rolled into the new Imperial Navy. But I'm like, ooh, I want to hear a story about these Saturnine fleet captains. They sound really interesting. And also this space station they're sitting on is a gathering ground for small groups of space Marines who are in between missions going off on some other quest. And I thought that would be a book I'd want to hear about is some of these space Marines and what their little quests are. And they meet here, they get together, they share stories and then go off on their next adventure. That sounds like a really cool idea, but we didn't get any, any of that. So Right. It, it is interesting to see um, in this story, these different legions working together in this way. And I don't think we've gotten that up until this point, but it, it really does fall short, doesn't it? So Cestus, Captain Cestus and his fleet pursue the Furious Abyss and how do they catch up to the Furious Abyss out in the open? They just It just happens. How do they get it to drop out of the warp? It, it's not in the warp yet. It's heading to the jump point, but it's slow oh, so sin. They catch it before it leaves the system? Yeah, we get, we get a very good idea of how much slower this, this ship is than these other cruisers and the like. The, the Furious Abyss is a, is a bucket that can move very, very slowly. So we did get a descriptor of the phalanx in the Flight of the Eisenstein, and the phalanx was a uh, a planetoid that Rogel Dorn had converted into a giant spacefaring fortress. So... Rogel Dork. Rogel Dork is uh, probably the the owner of one of the biggest spacefaring vessels in the galaxy, but the Furious Abyss seems to be bigger than that. So the fleet gives chase, and they catch up to it, and they... I, I, I would way push back on, on it being... The, the, the Phalanx is a move. Right. I don't think that... I think the Furious... So I have come to the conclusion here. I'm going to go on a tangent for a second uh, because we have talked about the Gloriana class cruiser in the past. And I, and maybe Manipole, maybe you can help us out with this a little bit, but I think at the time that these books were being written, the Gloriana had not been conceived like from a lore perspective, because, you know, like we get the, uh, the invincible reason in descent of angels is just referred to as a battle barge. And the Furious Abyss is supposed to be massive. So I think this might honestly be like the first kind of conception of what a Gloriana class ship would be, or even potentially bigger than that. Yeah, that'd be interesting to look at. The problem with scale in 40K is that you find 10 different YouTubers who believe that the scales are are one size and someone else thinks it's something else. But yeah, I don't think we have the conception of the Glorianas yet. I think what this is actually a callback to is the eventually in the 41st millennium, the planet killer. And that's what they knew. So it's a, it's a, and it has like three tines on the front, the, the furious abyss and the planet killer from Abaddon has a bunch of tines on the front. So it's probably, that's where the conception for this came from. Right. So I'm actually looking it up on a wiki now, but the, the only, uh, the only vessels known to be bigger than a Gloriana 
are the Phalanx and the Abyss class battleship. So this would be bigger than a Gloriana. But I, I do agree with Brandon that the the fleet or the fleet the, the ship scales have never really been fleshed out up until this point. And even in this book, it does not do a good job of that. But anyway, there is a big uh, battle here in space, which is interesting. Uh, what did you guys think about his writing on the actual fleet actions? I think the the actions with the the frigates that go in, I think that's uh, done really well. But at the beginning, at the outset of the battle, Cestus orders orders the Thousand Sun Motep to approach and hail them uh, to see what's going on. And you know, Cestus kind of knows in the back of his mind that like they're already traitors. But you know, we have to we have to make sure we have to talk to them first. And of course, the the Space Wolves are pissed about this. And the world eaters are beyond pissed about it. So Motep goes forward and makes his little, uh, he hails them basically. And he's like right out in front of the Furious Abyss, which is not a good place to be. Like if you're expecting this might be a, a hostile vessel. That was one of my biggest things. So I was like, of all the places that you would put your ship for an unknown vessel of unknown intent, intent that just seems like a terrible spot. That'd be like in the, the equivalent of you running up against a, a Napoleonic frigate on its side and you're, and you're, you know, presenting yourself for a raking shot. Uh, we know, we do know um, in 40 K that a lot of battleships in the Imperium put their weapons on the front that they front load a lot of weapons. Usually we hear about that a lot. So these guys would know this. So to put right, to go right off of this ship's bow seems like the, the last thing that you would do, especially when you're an experienced fleet captain, like this, uh, like Motep captain Motep is supposed to be right. So I think that an overwhelming theme of this book is arrogance, because what we see here is Cestus ordering a diplomatic parlay knowing damn well that the thousand or the world bear, word bearers are already guilty. He then Motep. I'm not sure he knows that yet. I think he's still hoping that there's some kind of mistake or something going on. But the theme that we see throughout the book or the, the consistent through line with Cestus is that he wants to get to McCrag to either warn them or stop the abyss from the outset of leaving that station. So I, I don't know, maybe you're right, but it's again, it's one of those things that's not, explained in great detail. Anyway, Motep is super arrogant for being out in front of this this unknown battleship. And then what happens next is beyond arrogant because the word bearers fleet admiral Zadkiel just just sits there and gets shot like after he declares hostilities, he sits there and lets this Thousand Suns uh, battleship basically rotate on its axis and fire broadside after broadside after broadside into the bow of the furious abyss. And it's not until after like three, three rounds of broadsides that Zadkiel's finally like, okay, fire the main gun. Yeah. And I think in the book, it says the combat had been going on for an hour before he fired the main gun. I'm pretty sure that that was the line in the book. I I believe you. I think it's right on par for what's been going on so far. I don't remember, but I really hope that's not the case because that makes it even worse than it already was. Um, and, you know, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, arrogance is a big theme of this book. But again, 
I don't think they did a good job with it because we crossed many, many lines, many, many times, excuse me. Uh, we cross from arrogance into just plain stupidity, especially on Zadkiel's part. That guy is, an, is a moron because the, the entire time with all of his actions, it's not even like, a oh, this guy's very arrogant, and very confident of himself. You, I don't know about you guys. I was sitting there with this book and many times I was like, how on God's green earth did this guy get put in charge of anything? Yeah, that's a good question. As I'm going through it, I think they certainly wanted to build up the the theme of, of his of his arrogance and his foolishness. But despite that, he still almost wins. He gets awfully close to his goal. So after this this fight, then a number of the Imperial ships are crippled or destroyed, and the Abyss does make it into the warp. And Cestus and is it one other ship were able to give chase? The yeah, it was the uh firebrand or something like that. Um and the, the Fireblade. The, yeah, the Fireblade. So it was the the Rothful is the the ship that that all the Space Marines are on, and the Fireblade is a uh, frigate that is uh, attached to them or a part of their fleet. Real quick, what did you guys think of this psychic attack that the World Eaters or not the World, world Eaters, the Word Bearers conduct on this fighter squadron? I wanted to bring that up too. Um, it definitely seems within the realm of possibilities. I think that there should have been like a little more of a wild magic element to it. Like maybe they couldn't direct it very well. So maybe it took more of the Abyss's crew with it that it just seems like it would even out more that way. But I, I think it, it worked very, very well. And that's super convenient for the word bearers. I was actually hoping it was something else because when I saw the Imperial fighter crews turning on each other, I thought it would have been very interesting if the word bearers cult had already expanded so much that the fleet was now full of these of these traders and then on the imperial ships are worried oh are, is the rest of the crew uh on our main ship are they going to start turning trader as well and then you have this really interesting fight on board the ship to take it from the traders but that didn't happen it was just a psychic attack and i thought that was a kind of an easy easy out i I, i'm not gonna lie i actually preferred it being a psychic attack versus that because i was worried it was gonna be that and i was sitting there like who do these guys think they are the alpha legion i would have felt a lot better about that if it had been that if it was an alpha legion ship especially with all the secrecy that went into constructing the ship and remember these these guys these ultramarines and and this uh saturnine fleet they're not they were never even supposed to be there so for the word bearers to have agents already set up to stop that fleet, it, it's just pushing my suspension of disbelief a little too far. Whereas if yeah, it was that somebody, would have been a little far. Yeah, if it was somebody like the Alpha Legion, I would have been like, hell yeah, they planned for this. They planned for everything, but not the word bearers, especially not with how stupid Zadkiel is. Have you guys seen Glass Onion? No. Well. Do, do yourself a favor and don't watch it. Just watch the drinkers video on it where he replays the clip of Daniel Craig over and over again going, it's just dumb. That's Zach Kiel. He's just dumb. Now, once they get into the warp, they have another interesting weapon that they turn on him though. It's that psychic mine, which was with a bunch of crazy psychers. They're a pump full of drugs or something. And then it detonates and causes a, a massive, it collapses the warp tunnel on the Imperial ships. That I actually thought was really cool. I'd love to see more warp warp based weapons as well, because a lot of the times when it comes to combat in the warp, we're just like, oh, it's demons. Yeah, that was an interesting strategy. Yeah. And we'll see another one later on in the story. 
but the the fire blade is uh, effectively destroyed or or um, its geller fields go down the crew becomes possessed and then for some reason the wrathful allows them to dock i suppose they they think maybe the ship still could be saved my uber beef with this scene right here is that they be they they dock together while they're in warp transit which doesn't seem that plausible because i mean like the the whole warp quarantine like that the the geller fields enact is such a serious deal because warp corruption is is such a dire threat to everyone that it's it's completely out of character to allow this kind of thing to happen yeah i that kind of dropped me out of the my suspension of disbelief as well because i thought surely they couldn't be that dumb but again here we are uh and it leads to an interesting fight on board the ship with these warp entities that come out that are kind of wearing the suits of the Fireblade crew. That was kind of interesting. It should be mentioned that in the, the previous uh, action that the Thousand Sun ship, the Waning Moon, was destroyed, but Captain Motep got out in a Mary Sue pod and was picked up by the Rothful. So he is now on board, but he is in... I think he's like held prisoner or something at this point, but they let him out at some point to fight the the, the crew of the Fireblade, I think. No, he's not being held prisoner at this point, but that is a major thing that I do want to complain about in this book is will they, won't they game that they play with Motep over and over and over again. But yeah, he, he basically clears out that whole deck using his psychic gifts, which I, I was pretty okay with that, you know, He's a thousand sun. He's a captain in the thousand suns. He should be a very powerful psyker and he should know about these types of things. I will say, I think that for the most part, most of the action scenes in these books are decent. Uh, I really can't complain about any of them. Um, Some of them tend to drag on a bit, um, but more so my issue is that this book is, it's just, it's a lot of action and not a lot of plot, well, and I don't really like that. And we should say a word about the Council of Nikea, or the Edict of Nikea. The Edict stated from the Emperor that you could not use any psychic powers, and it's a difficult blow for the Thousand Suns. The only exceptions being the Navigators and Astropaths, so basically the people that allow you to move through the warp and send messages across the galaxy. Everybody else was shut down, and it, it hit the Thousand Suns especially hard because... They're primarily Psychic Legion. And this sets up the main rivalry between Bringar, the Space Wolf, and Motep, because the Space Wolves really hate Psychers. That's like their thing. They they kill every Psyker they find. And this sets up this rivalry later on about what's going to happen with Motep. Are they going to allow him to use the Psychic powers and lose the Space Wolf or vice versa? Right. So we get this pretty epic battle scene of having to uh, fight back the possessed crew of the Wrathful. And I think Motep says at one point that he sees the entity for what it is, and it somehow corrupted the machine spirit of the Fireblade. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the possessed crew of the Fireblade, yeah. Right. But then, so, but then the, the Abyss has to drop out of warp after this little interlude and stop at a nearby a gas station for repairs, right? Correct, because the waning moods, the waning moon's broadsides in that battle damaged the like the coolant system or something like that. So they had to stop off at a repair facility and get some work done. Which this this scene here, I've got a lot of problems with, or I, I've got a few problems with anyway. Uh, for me, I think 
so when the uh, the abyss is docked, they send assault boats with the Thousand Suns and the Space Wolves and a, a few Ultramarines. Well, there's right? there's only one Thousand Suns. It's just Motep. He doesn't oh, have uh, any the, personal one. With him. Yeah. So is does Motep go on this little venture? I don't think he does. No, because he's he's incapacitated after clearing the docking bay. So let me restart. It's the World Eaters, the Space Wolves, and a couple Ultramarines. They Correct. are sent in attack craft to land at the the dock where they're being where the abyss is being fixed, and they're going to try to board the ship and then try to do whatever damage they can from the inside. Now. I think that you could have cut a hundred pages out of the book if all of the space marines had gone there, got on the ship, and then you cut out this next chase scene and move right to the the assault on the uh, t- cyclonic torpedoes and the warp core at the end. Uh, but instead, this this little assault on the on the dock doesn't go very well, and really the only one who kind of makes it through is Scrawl, the world eater. There are a few that actually get on the ship, but he's the only one that survives. Right. Scroll makes it on board the ship. Bringard doesn't. Uh, and then there's the other ultramarine captain. Antigues. Antigues, yeah. Our boy Antigues. Well, so like my problem here is they're at this big space or this big repair dock. The ship is in dry dock being or is in dock being repaired. Why didn't they just like light it up from a distance? And, you know, touch off all the fuel tanks in that docking bay and try to take the ship with it. It would have done a ton of damage. We're getting on the radio and tell the guys on the dock, don't fix that ship. Right. Or, like, lock it down. Don't let it get away. Hey, there's there's a lot of ways that this could have been handled. I, I would push back on the why didn't they light up the ship from a distance. For one, it, talk, it does say that, like, they're too far away. And so they send those. And also, I mean, that's a lot of collateral damage, and I can see them wanting to avoid that. So my only beef there is that you're telling me attack boats have a greater range than macro cannons. Actually, yes, I am telling you that because attack boats can fly under their own propulsion. So they actually have an infinitely longer range than macro cannons. And I think they were trying to skirt around the docks. So they probably had were going in a... Yeah, it, it does. To keep, the, to keep their ships in cover. Well, so I guess uh, Bringard does kill or at least mortally wound one of the word bearers assault captains, which we see later on part of the word bearers plot there. But, you know, as we said, scroll gets on board, but he's the only one out of his assault company that lives. Antigues lives as well, but he gets captured by the word bearers and he's uh, scroll witnesses this kind of demonic rite that goes on at one point. And I'm not sure how in character for a world eater this is like he goes full stealth mode for a while. Like he keeps telling himself that he's got to buy his by time. Right. This little bit here was the one little piece of this book. I remembered from my previous reading is when the word bearer Sergeant commander Reskiel is giving his little speech, you know, in this chapel and he's going to tell the word bearer what for. And the word bearer doesn't, I don't think he has any bullets for his sidearm. You mean, you mean world, world eater. eater? What do I keep saying? Word world bearer. eater. So the world eater doesn't have any rounds for his bolt pistol. So he just turns on his chain axe and throws it and cuts the guy's hand off and smashes his face. I thought that was a wonderful, wonderful yeah. scene. I yeah. love that part. That was, that was really great. That was some Chad shit. He, yeah, he 
gets his hand cut off and then Skrull bashes his face in with his shield. It's awesome. Yeah, the other thing, too, um, that I want to push back on you a little bit there, Warwick, is um, I don't think at any point it says that Skrull has the nails. Yes, it does. He does? Yeah, he does. He's got the nails? He's got the nails. He's got butcher's nails. I don't remember them saying that. Yeah, I don't remember that either, but I'll... We'll we'll get a reference later. Yeah, because I was going to say, I I actually really liked that he went stealth mode because it shows the world eaters in kind of a different light of they actually are capable of being smart. I mean, we'll see that later with Karn. Karn is by far not an idiot, except for when he's under the influence of the nails. Right. It just, it, I would have liked to see more uh, personal struggle there to kind of fight back against that urge. But I know he does what he does, what he has to do. And that's, what's important. And he also, I guess he does have some personal struggle later on because as he's hiding throughout the ship, Zed Kiel catches him on like a camera and then starts to talk to Skrull through the intercoms and Skrull finds this giant chain axe. That's like three times taller than space Marine. And it used to belong to Angron, the, world eaters primarch and basically what that symbolizes is angron gave up this giant chain axe as a token of subservience to the war master and when scroll hears that he he about loses his mind but he is able to kind of again break away and then kind of retreat in the bowels of the ship and hide out and this chase goes on for a couple like six uh two three four weeks yeah and this is where we get a large long section of the book i thought we could have done without like if Bringar and Skrull, them both had gotten in and the rest of the book was just like maybe him, Cestus and Motep all going through the bowels of the ship to get to the to the plasma reactors, I'd have been fine with that. And then they have the showdown at the end with Zadkiel, but instead we get another long chase through the warp. And then we start seeing other characters from the Wordbearer fleet who are off in the distance giving commentary on what's happening. And I thought that part was a little bit annoying. Yeah, I agree that this whole section could have been cut out. I, I did not care for it. Yeah, it, it certainly adds far too much fat to the book. Um, it, I, if we, we already mentioned, if we trimmed a lot of that away, this book would be, a, would be way shorter. So eventually the, the fleet doesn't catch up to the abyss until it's in the Ultramar system. So it's, it's on McCrag's doorstep. And, we know that uh, Motep wakes up at some point and shares a vision with Cestus. And this causes a big falling out between Cestus, Bringar, and well, Cestus and Bringar, really, because Bringar hates the Thousand Sun, and Cestus is ignoring the Edict of Nikea by doing this. So Bringar's like on outs. And, you know, Cestus and Bringar had been friends up until this point because they'd served in several campaigns before this. So they were best buddies. Well, Bringar's on the outs because of it. And uh, now Cestus is kind of alienated one of his most powerful allies in this. They end up even having a duel, right? I thought that was interesting. And Bringar does seem like a very capable warrior. And he nearly kills Cestus in this honor duel they have. Cestus pulls a neat trick, though, because the duel will end if they can draw blood from the torso. And as Cestus is getting his life nearly taken from him, I think Bringar is choking him to death. Uh, Cestus is able to pick up a blade that was broken off a chainsword and then draw it across Bringar's torso 
by drawing blood and ending the 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 duel. So the the duel was the fate of uh, Motep. So if Bringar won, he was going to kill Motep for disobeying the Edict of Nikea. And if Cestus won, he was going to basically use him as a psyker, which is a big no-no. Yeah, and then this is, again, I don't really like this will-they-won't-they they with Motep because they, they, they realize that he's been using his psychic powers. Um, so they lock him up. And then they capture, on this dock, they capture this word bearers uh like aspirant acolyte young space marine dude yeah ultus he's just a battle brother yeah and um then they they try to interrogate him it doesn't work cestus has motep basically dig out his brain um and leaves him as a drooling mess but they get the information they need but they're attacked in the warp again which causes Motep to get injured and then he's passed out. And then when he wakes up, they're like, Oh, we don't want you to use your powers. Oh, but yes, we do. It it just kind of drives me nuts that if you want to use him as like, if Cestus wants to use him as a psyker, just commit to that. Stop this like lock up. And then even, I think at one point he even tells him like after the battle, he's going to turn him in as well. Even after he decides like, yeah, you can use your power. Right. So I think at that point, Cestus would be just as guilty because he allowed this to happen. He encouraged it, in fact. So if Motep was going to get put to the, you know, was going to get executed for disobeying the Edict of Nikea, so should the the those that encouraged it. Right. That That's just the kind of totalitarian mentality that the Imperium has. So it seems like it should be that way. Now, in this section, we also get a couple of visions. You remember the visions that Bringar has of the Black Wolf, where he, he goes back to his days training on, on Fenris. And we also get a vision from Cestus, or at least a memory, of him going through the trials. Was he climbing a pyramid, getting whipped by some guy? Or is that, that's a little yeah, later on. But like... What do you think of, well, so I think, what do you, what do you think uh, of the Fenris uh, visions? Well, I think that, I mean, it's fine. Uh, I don't think it's it adds that much to the story, but it does a little later on when there's there's another kind of psychic assault. I mean, it, it's it's fine, I guess. I mean, Bringer's just dreaming about Fenris in winter, right? Yeah, but at some point, the Black Wolf gives him his pistol back that he didn't have. And, it, and in the vision, he gets this pistol that he'd made, but I'm not clear if he actually then has it in real life. But he does make mention that, oh, there's my pistol. That's where I left it. I guess I I guess I don't remember that very clearly. Yeah, I guess I smooth brained that part. Well, because it doesn't really add anything to the story um, other than a vision of Fenris. My my beef with Bringar is that he's very long winded. So I tend to tune him out for some of it. And like, I, I like the space wolves and everything. I just don't think that Bringar is a great character. He's long winded and he doesn't say anything. Right. Like, like he talks a lot without saying anything. Like when he's, he's almost like a politician. <laughs> like when he's hunting the friend Fenrisian or uh, Orca or whatever, and it just goes on forever and ever. And it's like, yeah, Bringar, we know how fleet action works. So later on, though, it is revealed that there's this entity that the word bearers have a some sort of pact with called Wasoric, and there's a hint really just at the end that Wasoric has been there all along stirring up all of these rivalries on the ship. And we later find out that it has been, it possesses the helmsmistress, Venkmeyer, 
and she turns into this horrible beast that Motep eventually has to fight. Did you guys get the sense throughout this that there was a warp entity moving these these on, or it just kind of, to me it felt like it came out of nowhere, all of a sudden? Yeah, this... no, and I absolutely hate this. Part. Yeah, like that, absolutely. That was one of the most infuriating things to me. It was like, oh, it was me all along, and I was like, oh, this is a contrivance. Right, because I feel like I feel like Bringar acted in the way a space wolf would act if there was a psyker disobeying the Edict of Nikea. I feel like Cestus is proud enough that he would want to run down this ship and stop it from bombing the crag. Uh, you know, it and it, it doesn't affect Motep hardly at all because he seemed like he was completely committed to this from the very outset anyway. So, I mean, what's... And it, I guess it, Motep already falls into the category of the Thousand Sons later on where they, they were going to disobey the Edict of Nikea anyway. So, like, it's not that weird that we find a Thousand Son disobeying the Edict. Well, we, lear- we learn that the, the Thousand Sons... I mean, we haven't gotten there yet, but we will eventually learn that the Thousand Suns really never stopped after Nikea. So, I like, I had no problem with him. They could have thrown in something like that. I know that we haven't had a lot of experience with the Thousand Suns. Although, actually, we have with Magnus. Magnus clearly didn't stop. He's done warp fuckery since we've gotten... Before we've gotten to this point. Right, so my my point is, none of these characters are acting out of character. So to say that they were all manipulated by a demon is a contrivance because they're not being manipulated to do all the things that kind of their basic programming dictates they would do, right? Yeah, I and in other places this has been handled better, where you have some warp trickery going on and you see behind the scenes someone like the Changeling who's you know, pulling all the strings and making this happen. But this just came out of nowhere, I thought. And then likewise, you've got the other guys in the Word Bearers fleet who decide that they're going to start another warp storm in order to make it harder for the Ultramarines to catch up to the Abyss. It's just so many little contrivances. It's it's like, okay, this added another 20 pages. Let's just go, let's just go, let's just go. But finally, we do get to the end. And... They send assault boats again. So in a in an epic boarding action, Cestus has declared that the uh, he, he received the vision from Motep that the Furious Abyss is going to bomb one of McCrag's moons with cyclonic warheads, and the debris fallout from that will pelt McCrag so thoroughly that it will break open the initial defenses, and then the Abyss can virus bomb it. And then that's the end of McCrag. For those of us that are, for those of you that aren't aware, McCrag is the Ultramarines' homeworld, and this is where I have beef with the story, because the realm of Ultramar is made up of five hundred different worlds. And I, I talked to Manipal about this, but here's the thing: McCrag might be like a symbolic victory for the world eaters or word bearers. Sorry, word bearers, but the Ultramarines have other forge worlds. And we know it this time because they talk about it in a cutaway where um, Zedkiel's talking to Corferon that the word word bearers are mustering at Kalth with the rest of the Ultramarines to go on this this new campaign. Really, it's the setup for the ambush at Kalth where the word bearers stab the Ultramarines in the back. Anyway, 99% of the Ultramarines Legion are not in the crag, they're at Kalth. So destroying the planet doesn't kill very many Ultramarines. Now, the Ultramarines also have other recruiting worlds, because they recruit from 500 different worlds. They also have other Forge worlds, so they get all their war gear from a different place. 
all of their command structure is not on McCrag. It's again on Calth. So I, it, it doesn't seem like a very practical application of resources. If Calth is so important, and Corferon says that in one of these cutaways, is that you know we mustn't risk anything. The ambush at Calth is too important. So it's just really bizarre that they would send this Titanic warship off on this kind of misnomer mission, right? Well, and also Corferon talks about how this attack on McCrag is vital to the success of the ambush at Calth. But it's never gone into as to why. Now, I I have been racking my brain about this for a while because it just doesn't make sense to me. The only answer that I have come up with is that McCrag has a pretty good-sized fleet that defends it, is what this book has led me to believe. So my only thought was the idea would be to hinder that fleet from reinforcing Kalth once that ambush begins. I mean, if that's the case, this is a terrible way to do it. So my pushback on that would be Zedkiel is determined to virus bomb the planet. So he makes it very clear the planet is the objective and nothing else. If I could be the fanboy for the word bearers, I would say that for them, the symbolic victories are very important. But I think that they're they're not necessarily looking for a victory. They're trying to stir up the warp. They're trying to make... Uh, war crimes. They're trying to make bad things happen. So symbolically destroying McCrag might give them the psychic advantage that they're looking for in the wider battle. You know, just like the Isfan 4 massacre is not just about shattering these these uh, Space Marine legions, but it's also about the betrayal that then stirs up everything else in the universe. Istvan 5, you said 4. Like I said, Istvan 5 We'll be cutting that in later, along with all the word bearers, world eaters, thousand sons, emperor's <laughs> children, yeah. misnomers. But so I would say that that symbolic victory might be very good for them. But again, they could have solved this problem by sending the abyss out with one escort ship, you know, and that would have solved their problem. So I don't know why they send the ship out by itself. So at any point in this chase, like this last last half of the chase, at any point if Zadkiel had slowed down and just gave a broadside to the Rothful, that would have been it, because we already know that the Abyss can obliterate one of these battleships in a single broadside. It's already done it to the the uh what was it? The Pride of McCrag, that first battleship? The Fist of McCrag. Fist yeah. of McCrag, sorry. So they do send another set of assault boats against the Furious Abyss, and the rest of the Space Marines get on board. But it's very sad that when they're shooting them down the torpedo tubes of the Abyss, and a bunch of the assault boats miss. But a few do get in. Uh, Bringar is possessed by some by the warp entity, maybe with Sorek or something else. I don't know. No, it, it was a, another psychic attack because it hits, uh, it hits Cestus too. And so Bringar is actually convinced that uh, he's being attacked by wolves. So he kills all these wolves that are attacking him. And it turns out it's all the blood claws in his, his uh, squad that he's killed. And he, he shakes that off really quickly. So I kind of had some problems. Yeah, He's there. just like, oops. Well, time to get going. Yeah, he basically massacres all of his subordinates, and he's like, eh, whatever. And then Cestus kind of gets something similar, but he imagines himself in the Nine Rings of Hell. Yeah, Cestus goes uh, full-on divine comedy on us and uh, 
starts hanging out in the circles of hell with Dante. And I, I, I want to complain about this because the, the psychic attack for Bringar is over very quickly and it just drags on for, uh, for Cestus. And it's, it's so slow. It takes forever. I, I was actually, you know, I was finishing up the book and I'm sitting there and like that, but from the time they get on in the audio book, from the time that they get on the furious abyss to the time that they destroy it is like two hours of audio. They're on it forever. And I'm like, again, this is just more pages that can be cut out here. No, I totally agree. It, it takes way too long. Yeah. So I've got the print book right in front of me. Um, the book is 411 pages long. So eventually though, we do get the band back together. It's Skrull, Bringar, and Cestus make it together. They do blow up some of the torpedoes, but not all of them. Um, it should be said that Cestus has the entire layout of the Furious Abyss memorized because he got magic visions from Motep. And the parallel to these three navigating the ship is that Motep is back on the dying Rothful because the Rothful distracted the Abyss long enough for the boarding to or boarding boats to land. The Rothful's being destroyed, but Motep is fighting the demon thing, and you know, he eventually he fights it and eventually wins. But that that's the parallel anyway. So basically what we get at is that there are no survivors to this tale. Yeah, so Bringar pulls a Spock and punches Cestus out of the way, sends himself into the reactor to blow it up with melted charges. Skrull has a pretty good end where he charges up the boarding ramp with his shield up. And doesn't he end up cutting off Zadkiel's fingers? Yeah, he cuts off a couple of Zadkiel's fingers. He kills like half a dozen of Zadkiel's body. That was pretty good. Which is, yeah, that was some epic shit. I, I really did like Skrull. I thought he was great. Skrull was one of the best characters in the book because he's like, I'm just here to murder oh, yeah, shit. And he does. And most of this book is about murdering yeah, shit. Yeah, so, so. When, the, when the Furious Abyss is docked, it, there's that cutaway of Skrull charging through the the kind of docking bay. And like, he's not even, he's got no whims about killing civilians. He's just running through the, like the deck crew, massacring everybody on the way there, whether or not they were word bearers or not. He cut down everybody in his way. Well, he even says he's like, ah, Cestus told me to avoid casualties if possible, but a good bloodletting gets the boys going. And unfortunately that's what, on that first boarding action, that's what alerts the word bears to their action that the, the world eaters have killed a bunch of dock workers in order to get their blood pumping. So it's, uh, that's funny. But then in the end, Cestus does get the final fight with uh, Zadkiel and they end up killing each other. Bing, bang, boom. Correct. So, I mean, it's, it's a story. It exists on paper, I guess now, but what are some of the things that you boys did like? Uh, I, I will say this, of all the Horus Heresy books, this was one of them. Yes, well, I'll say that we do get a, quite a bit of description things here. Like, we understand that these uh, vessels have dueling pits in them. We get good descriptions of astropaths and navigators and psychers. We get a whole bunch of different psychic weapons the word bearers use in the warp. We understand that they've made packs with these demonic entities we get wonderful descriptions of the warp. I don't think you'd find another book that had the vast vistas that Ben Counter paints about how the warp actually looks. And when the Wrathful comes out of the final warp storm, 
it's described as having giant claw marks and bite marks all over the ship. And I thought that sort of thing really shows how dangerous the warp is, but also how beautiful it is with some of these descriptions. So that, if you could pull some of that out and maybe trim a bunch of the fat from this book, I think you've got a good story there. It's basically the plot to Mad Max. You're uh, sounding pretty close to heresy. There, yeah, that's right? some heresy shit right there. If you think the warp is beautiful, get out. Yeah, I mean, you do play word bearers, so. Fair. Now, here's a, here's a hot take for you fellas. You ready? Amazon Prime is getting ready to produce a Warhammer 40K series. And this seems to me like a perfect vehicle for a short, for a, a series of, of uh, stories to be broadcast on the silver screen or on the, the little screens on your desktop with our um, God Emperor Cavill playing the lead role of Cestus. And The Rock plays no. Motep. No. I mean, this this is writing itself. This is the perfect Amazon vehicle. Um, I, I actually think you might be onto something there. I think this could actually be like a good one-off feature-length film if you didn't try to tie it into anything else. Yeah, I mean, so the, the story does I- exist fairly well in its own bubble, but when you start to plug it into the, the rest of the universe, like they don't talk about this event at all in No, No Fear, which is the Ambush at Kalth book. And I think there's there's a very brief mention of the hull of the Furious Abyss in one of the Salamanders books because some Salamanders are sailing a battle barge away from the crag. And it's actually the Furious Abyss was big enough for this battle barge to sail through the wreckage of. Like it had a big hole through the middle and the Salamanders took this battle barge right through the middle of it. it apparently in other books, we find out that the Mechanicum actually made two more of these. Do you know that? Correct. So when we get into uh, they show up in Betrayer because they are part of the Shadow Crusade, which is when the 500 worlds are burning. And I think Gilliman actually takes down one or two of them in the battle over Angron's homeworld. So I mean, we'll get to that later on. But yeah, there are more Ab- Abyss class battleships. I can't wait till we get to Betrayer. Such a good it's book. It's a good such book. a good book. Little Sanguinous Extremis. Yeah, I uh, we can't get into it. We can't get into it. It's, it's too much. So it's, it's all in much. all, who is this book for? If if you're a, somebody who's getting into 40K, is this a book you'd recommend or 30K someone to read? Or is it only for completionists? What do you think? I think it's for completionists because it doesn't add it doesn't add a perspective to any one faction that is necessary to learning the lore. There are better resources for learning about World Eaters, Word Bearers, Alterines, and Space Wolves, and Thousand Sons. I think, um, honest to God, I think this should have been a 40k book. I don't think it should have been a 30k book. Take out all the Kalth stuff, make the Word Bearers already evil, and I think this actually would have been a pretty good like one-off 40k book. I, I would say it's probably just for completionists. I, I, I wouldn't recommend it. In fact, I've had people who are going through the series come up to me and they say, hey, I've heard that the battle for the abyss is really not good. Should I just skip it? I'm like, well, if you're comfortable skipping a book, then yes, I think this is one that's perfectly fine to skip. So if you boys could add one thing, I've got already gotten, I've already got mine picked out. If you could add one component, like a, a different piece of technology, like a piece of war gear, or maybe one extra character, what would you add to the story? I think I like that they added these different psychic weapons that the word bears used in the, in the warp. 
I wouldn't mind seeing a little bit more of that, but I, I don't know that I would add anything to the story. I would probably try to cut about a third of it out. I have an answer to that. And it's what it's with what I would add. I would put a teleportarium on the Rothful and that, that just, that puts, that puts world eaters on the abyss. There's no dock fight. They're already there. We can cut half of this book away if there's a teleportarium on the Rothful. Yeah. That's an interesting problem that, that certain technologies have destroyed whole genres of, of books. Like it's hard to write a mystery novel or a mystery story now in the modern age because all the characters would have cell phones where they could check instantly the information that they needed. Likewise, a teleportarium would have ended a lot of this very quickly. So there might have been one on the waning moon because it was actually an Astarte strike vessel. The Rothful is just a regular, it's a Saturnine ship. It's not a, it's not a, a space marine ship. Well, good discussion, everybody. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of what I would add to this to, to make it better. Uh, I really don't know. That's tough. Maybe maybe it would be a little bit more interesting if we got to see some of the more messed up things that the world or that the word bearers are doing. Like we got to kind of scratch the surface of it, but like a ship this size, I'd love to see like some Galvor back or um, just some kind of possessed Marines stuff like that. I, I don't know that it would make it better, but like give us a little, we haven't really seen the word bearers yet besides Erebus. So maybe just add, spend a little more time. And that's what this book could have done is really tell us who the word bearers are, which we're going to see is done better later with the first heretic. But I mean, that's something you could have done. Yeah. So I think we covered this one pretty well. I think we hit all the bases. Anything else we're forgetting boys? You know, what would have made it better. Add a Titan. Yeah, they could have put... A, it doesn't fit yeah. anywhere, but add a Titan. <laughs> they could have had a Titan just jump from the Wrathful to the Abyss and then run around on top shooting down into the into the yeah, vessel. It would have been great. Very cinematic. A, you know what? It Put a Titan in the shipyard. Yeah, it's like an old Warhound or something that got left behind, and it's like the last Warhound of its pack, and it's kind of decided it's much as might retire. But then the Abyss shows up, and... One more walk onto the abyss. I love it. That's crazy, but I like it. Wait, what is our next book, Brandon? Okay, well, we're going to jump from one of this. Really, I, let me ask you guys this. Out of the first 10 books, would you say there's any stinkers besides Out of the Abyss? No, I've enjoyed everything up to this point, really. Well, I, say I didn't hate this one, um, but like I said, I could have skipped it. But uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, um, this one is certainly the 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 driest for me definitely got a lot of beef with it and it's like you said it's one that you could skip if you're comfortable skipping books well the reason i ask is because we're about to jump into a great one and that is mechanicum by warwick's favorite author graham mcneil graham mcneil uh so like i should clarify for the audience my beef with graham mcneil isn't that i think he's a trash writer it's that he's on social media like a year ago running his mouth that canon doesn't matter it absolutely matters ironically he works for a company that he's got an established canon that he has to write within but no mechanicum is awesome we're gonna get into the martian civil war we're finally gonna get what everybody wants which is titans blah, 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 and blah. titans and more Titans, and other stuff happens too, but Titans. 
Yeah, it's like the the whole subplot in that book is completely overshadowed by all the Titan warfare. Oh, it's great. I will most certainly in that episode be screaming engine kill. Well, is is this one where we get the the full cast of presenters? You just want to come on for another one, don't you? No. We are not. We're going to have a very special guest who I'm not going to say anything about right now because if he backs out, I don't want to look like an idiot. But I think we're going to have a great guest for that. And, I think I might uh, know who you're talking about. We're looking forward to that conversation. I would be curious to see what that special guest has I've, to say. I've also got a guess. Boy, we've, we've actually, yeah, I'm looking forward to some of the people we're going to have on the show. It's going to be awesome. So uh, should we get into wrapping it up here, boys? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, thanks for uh, thanks for stopping by, everybody. Again, we'll be uh, we'll be doing a hobby roundtable around the middle of the month. Do we know what we're uh, what we're talking about in that roundtable at all? I always like text a bunch of stuff into the group chat, but then I forget about it like a week later. Well, I still have some ideas for plundering the vaults and uh, uh, just having trying to find new ways to play with old stuff. Yeah, um, I'm sure we'll have a good conversation. I'll be uh, I'll be looking forward to it. Yeah, I've got one for Fulgrim's Quest. We we should all talk about new paint uh, painting techniques that we've been learning and trying. Fantastic. We'll note that down and then promptly forget it, and Perfect. we'll scramble to find something right before the episode starts recording. Right on. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. Why don't you check us out on social media? We're LegionCast18, a Horus Heresy podcast on Twitter, and shoot us an email at LegionCast18 at gmail.com. And uh, we, we like to read fan mail. So let us know and tune in next time. Thanks, guys. I'll come on for any of the terrible books you have in the future. All right. Thanks for stopping by, everyone. And remember to march in fortune. Mm-hmm.